moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Previously on Cascading Leadership. The organization I worked with was going through a transition between tech platforms. I was really frustrated with the fundraising tool they were using. I just felt like it was a clunky experience that charged a lot. I didn't love that experience for the donors I was fundraising from. And so I was really frustrated. And then after I heard about, oh, when we go to find something new, we don't really know what to use. And it still has this expense and there's nowhere to find more information and just hearing more about how convoluted process was i was like this sucks like why does it have to be this way there's so many nonprofits out there like why don't they have better ubiquitous resources to tap into for these tools and services that ultimately drive a tremendous amount of impact when you think about the millions of dollars they raised with those tools how much better could it be if the tools were better and so i started obsessing with this and talking to other nonprofits and i kept hearing this consistent storyline of yeah our tech sucks 10 years behind, I've always felt that way. And the options are bad and it's hard to even find out about them. How are you meeting the cause without a growing, sustainable organization that runs in a fashion that competes from a hiring perspective with for-profit companies? Because if you care more about the message that all the money went to the cause, then you don't care about solving the cause. You don't care about solving the problem. And so I think that message of being obsessed with the problem was true for me as a startup founder, but it's also true for anyone who wants to support a nonprofit. Be obsessed with the problem. Don't get hung up on, I don't know, the ED drive, they're driving a pretty nice car. How much are they getting paid again at that nonprofit? You would never say that about the person running a small business chain of car washes. You'd be like, oh, good for them, wow. They've really grown. The business is doing so well. Look at their new car. Dude, like, just think about the differences there. It's wild. Yeah, you hear this romanticized, oh, they lived in a one bedroom and ate ramen and oh, how funny that is in hindsight. It's a lot deeper than that. And there's been multiple moments that I can remember being like sitting on the kitchen floor of my parents' house and holding my dog and sobbing, crying. And my mom just being like, do you want to keep doing this to yourself? Like, why are you doing this to yourself? And now. The conclusion of our interview of Mitch Stein, CEO of Pond. And even someone that close to me that was out of love and comfort. But you have to understand that you'll be completely alone. No one, no one's going to understand. Even the people that care about you most, they're not going to understand why you're doing. When you truly see the world in a different way in the future, no one's going to understand. And it's an unbelievably lonely experience. So I think just acknowledging that is the very first step. Because otherwise, if you don't actually acknowledge the challenge, then <laughs> you're never going to be able to overcome them. So naming them, I think, are really important and making sure you batten down the hatches that you've got community, you have support, you've taken care of your basic needs to take on that kind of challenge. And I think I just know I can prove people wrong. If they're going to underestimate the nonprofit sector, I was on a, a hosted a panel of a bunch of diverse founders in nonprofit tech. and one of them made this comment. They were quoting someone else. I don't remember who it was, but they said, it's not my job to make you rich. Underestimate me at your own peril. There's a lot of money out there. 
I don't need to make that in any one individual. It's not my obligation to make them rich. So that's what you're doing as a founder and to an investor. We never think about the power dynamic in that way. You always just, oh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. It's so nice of you to give me this money, right? When, hey, it's not their money. It's their job to find people like me. And I'm delivering value to them too. And it's the same attitude of a nonprofit, by the way, when they talk to donors. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, yes, this means so much. Like, it's, yeah, thank you. And also, I'm fulfilling a need for you. You want to be connected to cause. You want to help solve problems that are meaningful to you. And I'm an avenue for that. And that's what good fundraisers understand on the nonprofit side. And I've learned from them and how run my business. And I think it's something that I'm so passionate about sharing these stories and the value that comes out of the nonprofit sector, because I see it in myself. I take on lessons from the nonprofits I talk to in my own business literally every day. And I see a world where we all, anyone in business starts to value the nonprofit experience more and recognizes the things because there's Everyone wants to tell nonprofits like, oh, you should just act more like businesses, blah, blah, blah. And that's like a problematic statement because it's like, first of all, you're creating a false dichotomy. Like they, a lot of them already are all businesses. So you're just like creating this otherness that doesn't need to exist. And I would say it's both directions and no one acknowledges the reverse direction. No one acknowledges that businesses should act more like nonprofits. It's both and they should center community more. They should do more design thinking. They should center stakeholders. They should have more authentic engagement with their brand. They should be more mission aligned. They should be more causal. They should center the problem they're solving for society and not pushing people to buy something. Because the brands that do that well and mirror good nonprofits succeed. When you describe it that way, the first thing that jumped into my mind was the sustainability, corporate social responsibility and sustainability. And so I think that kind of correlates right to what you're saying in terms of the corporate sector taking on more of that persona of of an MPO. And just recognizing the value. How many corporate boards have a nonprofit executive on their board? I don't know what the stat is. I don't know that I've ever actually seen it. I'm sure they, they exist somewhere. I think like the Ford Foundation president is probably on a corporate board, but so limited. And I think that'd be an amazing thing for public companies to have a nonprofit executive on their board. How do you how, how do you think that helps them? Nonprofits have so much value to bring to the corporate setting in their experiences and the value that they hold in their organizations. I listed off a bunch of examples earlier, but helping companies center communities, understand outcomes, and design thinking and planning around marginalized communities served by the company as a business. I have several advisors that run nonprofits and they give me the best business advice. Yeah. The reason I ask that question is that sometimes what I find is having these conversations with folks is that unless you draw that direct connection to it, it's almost uh, nebulous, right? They don't, they aren't necessarily picking up what you're laying down, but I think mm-hmm. the way that you, the way that you just framed it, like the, the direct connection to what the benefit is, how that can help. We talk about the triple bottom line. And so Jim and I talk about this every once in a while about profits. Ooh, nasty. But businesses need that profit in order to do the things that they need to do. And I, what you're surmising is that it's not dissimilar for NPOs because in order to really make that impact, you need the money to make that impact. And one question that I, that I did have from something you mentioned earlier is that 
when you think about like how there's this maligned perception of MPOs, one, why do you think that is? I would say the two biggest contributors, one is just the history of what nonprofits were born out of. And two is the media impact. Nonprofits that we know today, a lot of them were born out of government shrinkage in the social sector and expansion in things like defense in the 80s. And so a lot of nonprofit organizations were formed and grew and started a real culture around nonprofits at that time when services stopped being offered at the government level and individual funding and private funding was expected to fill the gap. And then that has continued ever since. And I think the vast majority of nonprofit leaders, even today, are white women over the age of 50. And for a lot of them, it was a career they were able to take because their husband worked and this could be their good deed, or it was a wealthy women's volunteer opportunity even before the 80s. Nonprofits were confined to that space. And it was like the impact you have on the side is like a nice thing you do on the side. So that's just how the mentality was set around the sector for decades and has really been ingrained in us that, oh, you go work for nonprofits when you're a really good person and you're okay making less money. And in a society where we exclusively define success, by the way, in terms of how much money you earned, that's just an American cultural fact. Of course, we will value that job. It's a free market. If that job does not pay more and you keep people around with guilt, and which I find is that low paying wages is all about power. All those funders could be donating more money to pay people better, but that would be more overhead. So I think that structure is like self-perpetuating and it's really hard to get out of where that's just, oh, it's a lower paying job. Not as talented people go work there because otherwise if they were talented, they'd take a higher paying job. So I think that is shifting a lot as we find the fluid nature between what is for-profit, what is non-profit, like why do we make these distinctions? Is there middle ground? Can we all act more similarly to one another? So I hope that shifts. On the second point around the quote unquote scandals, I think if you actually dig under the surface, there's a book called Uncharitable by a guy named Dan Flott. And he had a TED talk about 10 years ago that went super viral. It's one of the most viewed TED talks ever about why the way we think about charity is wrong. It's still so relevant today. I actually just last night got to go to a screening of a documentary made around him and a lot of the nonprofits that he's worked with over the years and got to actually meet him and talk to him, see the new movie that's coming out. And a big thing they address are how people that innovate in the nonprofit space get regularly taken down by the media. Dan himself got accused of getting paid too much for running a breast cancer walk that raised three times as much as it ever had before. And it got turned into this narrative of like embezzlement when that was the headline an accusation was the headline. It was proved that nothing ever happened. And yet people like you and I remember the headline of, oh yeah, a lot of people in nonprofits are just trying to make money off them. And that's happened over and over again. The founder of the Wounded Warrior Project, for example, always emphasized investment in fundraising and awareness building. And they were raising over $400 million a year. They had grown the pie so much for veteran nonprofits and we're taking in 40% of those dollars 
and having an unbelievable amount of impact, even though their investment in fundraising was a higher percentage than others, it ignores the overall scale. And so the story came out that the CEO was spending too much on overhead and it became this scandal. They never found anything that was proving of maldoing and yet he was summarily fired by the board and their revenue collapsed over 60%. It has come nowhere near to recovering. And you know what that ultimately meant? Over $200 million was lost for veteran services. It didn't have to do with the Wounded Warrior Project versus other organizations. It's just people stopped, would lose trust in those moments. Some writer from the New York Times got paid for that report and moved on to the next thing. And they're ruining people's lives and a broader national perception of these organizations by all on a false narrative. I know that LB is going to have something to say on this, but it's really interesting that you draw that out, Mitch. And the whole idea of these false narratives that get formed and our attention spans are so short anyways that we don't follow those things through. But we've seen that journalistic trend go through any number of topics, but especially when we look at police citizen encounters and specifically police versus darker citizen encounters. And before anything is out, there's a narrative that comes out that so-and-so deserved to get shot or deserved to be summarily executed or whatever. And we don't really take the time to really take a look at what the core principles are. You know, it, it's a really interesting parallel between how non, not-for-profits are portrayed and also in, in certain instances, how citizen authority interactions are portrayed as well. I didn't draw the connection until you mentioned it, but it's as soon as you get a whiff of something that's scandalous, the press is off to the races about defining it one particular way. And then by the time it fizzles out, the facts are completely different than what the narrative was. And the people we listen to on these things all have their own agenda. And that doesn't come across either. And so People grab on to scandals and headlines when it serves their own agenda and they don't want to deal with the core problem at hand. Literally today, it's just believable. This catastrophic school shooting happening yesterday and there's conservative leaders tweeting about the fact that they saw a picture of the shooter, quote unquote, cross-dressing, which first of all, isn't true like just completely fabricated from some random Reddit that has now been picked up as news. And so clearly had a mental disorder. So in this one tweet, they're expressing an unbelievable amount of transphobia, just completely false information. And they're doing that all to distract from the fundamental issue, which is gun control that just no one wants to actually talk about. And so that shows up all the time when it comes up to media perception is people want to hang on to scandalous headlines when it gives a convenient reason to not address the underlying problem, which is, in this instance, for nonprofits, this conception that overhead is the way you evaluate them. It doesn't make any sense, but it sure does help funders maintain power in that relationship when they get to say how you spend. There's a lot of similarity. Mitch, you you said quite a bit and hit some really important areas for MPOs. The question that I have is with all of the elements that we've talked about, how does Pond fit into the equation? How does Pond help to solve for some of these issues that we've talked about? It's a tall order. Think about all of these big daunting issues we're facing. I think there's potential. I talked about the need for 
the marketplace, a unifying force, that infrastructure layer, those are like kind of intellectual concepts. And sure, that sounds great as a long-term vision, but how do you get started and how do you actually get there? And so that's where I think it's important to build a model that shows economic viability so that it can be continued to invest in and scaled to meet these broader needs for the sector. So where we started is creating a marketplace between people that work at nonprofits and the vendors that they utilize, the tools and services that they utilize their organization. Meaning when you go to Angie's List, you list a project for a handyman to hang your TV. They walk you through a few questions that you need to answer, and then you get to evaluate some potential vendors, men or women, who uh, could fulfill that need. And so we have a similar feature within the marketplace where nonprofits come, can post their needs, answer a few questions about it, and then through the platform in their inbox, get inbounds from vendors that solve those problems, be it with a software solution, a particular kind of consulting or service. And it's up to the nonprofit who they want to engage with. But whatever meetings they take through the platform, we actually credit them for doing so and giving us feedback on it because they're contributing to our growing peer review process of the vendors in the platform. And so we're doing a couple of things in that instance. We're reducing the barrier to learn about relevant solutions because it's really overwhelming. And if we can hone people in on stuff related to their problem, it's easier to get started. That also increases the knowledge and familiarity with things like tech is a scary topic for people. Consultants are scary if you've never had to hire one before. So really taking some of the intimidation and trust out of it by being that helping hand through the process and giving them real ownership on who and how they want to engage and when with a lot of information at their fingertips to help make those decisions. And the last piece is the reality that money comes in the way of these things a lot. And we've talked a lot about that funding process, that issue with how you get funding for things. It's not only that charity navigator makes this financial wellness decision based on overhead spend, but also funding comes from vendors with strengths. They say this actually has to go. I don't even care about your overall percentages. My money specifically has to go toward programs. You can't spend it on anything else. So that contributes to a lack of ability to think bigger about where your money can go or even have like ownership over it. And so it was always really important for us to say, could we actually reroute this system where vendors, we know they're spending tons of money on their go-to-market to try to reach these customers to Google, to Facebook, to click-through ads and whatever else, sponsorships. Can we start funneling some of that money that they want to spend to get to customers and actually put it in that customer's pocket as a reward for sharing what their need is? And can we reroute the system in that way so it starts to be focused on needs, so it's led by the customer need, as opposed to pushed via advertising from the vendor side to meet their needs? And that's a fundamentally different structure and setup than how we're used to online commerce. We are used to being advertised to based on people accumulating data and information on us in a super creepy way. And we're thinking... What if I just said what I needed? And that's the point in time I want to hear from relevant vendors that meet that need. And so that's really the structural thing. There's a lot we want to grow into that. But at its core, that's like how it works and becomes more and more powerful the more users that you have on both sides of the marketplace. And so we spend our time doing is helping to reach more nonprofits. We have a fast-growing community of nonprofit leaders also engaging with the thought leadership we put out, group webinars, talking to each other about potential vendors and references, 
and bringing all that in platform to build that data and understanding to just create more trust and transparency around making these investments. Because ultimately today we had to build something that required no funder involvement because I knew this wasn't how they operate. But in the future, is it realistic that a nonprofit comes through Pond, finds the vendor they need to redo their website, knows it's going to cost them $10,000, but they've evaluated a few different ones. They're already going to save $500 because they're Pond credits. And they get to the end and it says, check for relevant grants for this kind of work and automatically submit something with no extra information because we already have everything we need to send to funders within our network who are interested in funding these kinds of specific projects. And I think that is super realistic as an add-on. It'll be another addition of building the marketplace audience and stuff, but we have to get to the framework and proof points that this works and that it's trustworthy and we've established a standard. And then I think that funder involvement will follow, which to the whole point of stop counting out the nonprofit sector, How what kind of marketplace could you have in the for-profit sector where your customer's stuff gets paid for by someone else? Sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? Absolutely. I have a conceptual question here because I want to understand the model. So on this is how I interpreted what you just said. I'm thinking of a triangle. And you're talking about three pillar marketplace. You have the customer, which is the nonprofit that has a need. You have vendors that provide the service. And then you have third-party funders that will finance the need if they are tapped in. Is that the right model that I'm picking up? Eventually, yeah. Like I said, we don't have the funder element today. I'm just saying where it can go. I think by establishing more standards, transparency, volume, data and information about how these purchases are made, you those are the needs of the funder. And so that's how I see that element coming into play here, where we can actually forward thinking funders could leverage this to be really effective with micro grants around specific needs people have that they've done the work to identify the right solution through a trustworthy pathway. When I think about it in concept, it's similar to what auto dealers and auto finances have done yeah. without all the sliminess that, that that happens there. I was working on an auto marketplace IPO when I was an investment banker, and that influences how I think about this marketplace all the time because the nonprofit sector's purchase behavior, in my mind, is still at the used car lot in the 90s without the internet. And you think about where we've come from that to buying a car online today and the world of difference that has made in terms of user experience, access, product quality, trust, accountability. Why would we not want all of those things in support of the organization solving the biggest problems that we all have around us? And when that model matures, that's going to drive overall pricing down for those not-for-profits too. So it's going to answer some of the cost concerns that they have. Because if you have this vibrant marketplace where suppliers are meeting the demand of the customer in general, yeah. there's going to be competition which dri- drives the overall price of services down too. That's a great well, vision. The more important thing than the price, by the way, is the outcomes. Like we've talked about before, price, whatever the price needs to be, But what if we had more innovation specifically focused on the needs of these organizations? Because I know what the problem is, where it is, and how to get to it. If I'm investing in companies solving those problems, that sounds pretty darn good. And today, it's the exact opposite. It's really hard to justify what the problem is. It's really hard to establish a go-to-market in the sector. And so companies don't make intentional investments in solutions and innovation specifically for the sector because investors don't want to invest in it. When I was listening to that part of what you were saying, 
something that jumped out to me because I've worked with a number of non-for-profits in a couple of different capacities. And when you said grant, of course, like all the bells went off because they spend an inordinate amount of time chasing down grants with very low return. And that, that one element alone, I went, it was just like, ding. I think one of the many important elements you've talked about the arduous journey. You've talked about what you would like to see in terms of how Pond evolves. Of all the things that you've covered, what would be a couple of the the takeaways or meaningful elements that you would like to leave the audience with? One. And two, how can folks connect with you with regard to Pond? I think I'd summarize all the stuff we've talked about everything from following what brings you joy and being obsessed with the problem and focusing that through a lens of how you can have a positive impact on the world. Two things that I say to myself almost every day, keep going and you'll think of something. I appreciate that. And how can folks find you? Yes, I'm very loud as someone can be on a written platform on LinkedIn. Connect with me there. Just Mitch Stein Pond, little pop up. And then also anyone here listening that wants to learn more, if you're connected with a nonprofit, absolutely go to joinpond.com as our, or sharing that with folks in the nonprofit sector. It's a completely free resource that saves people a ton of time and literally puts money in their pocket to pay for stuff that they struggle to fund. And if you are interested in chatting with me directly about anything, my email is mitch at joinpond.com. Don't forget about your podcast, Mitch. Oh, and you definitely, as we mentioned several times, check out the Kids Table podcast. We interview nonprofit and impact founders and leaders around the country. We actually focus each season by specific cities. So we really dig into the local impact ecosystem and grassroots nature of the work. We've covered Fort Wayne, Indiana, my hometown, New York City, my adopted town, Philadelphia, where I went to college, and San Diego, where our head of engineering is based. So we'll be taking on new cities every month for the rest of the year. And we put out a ton of episodes. And then just my hope with the podcast more specifically is it's not just for nonprofits. It's everyone understanding the importance of impact and everyone paying attention to those stories because the vast majority of the people I interview, it's their first podcast interview ever. And one of their first interviews ever. And I find that shocking that they are not getting more attention and more people are not giving them the mic because they have unbelievable stories to tell. Mitch, you covered a lot. One of the things that, that stuck out to me was you you can't be what you can't see. I think that's very powerful. I'm always talking about representation and I feel confident that the NPO world is in good hands with you and Pond. We thank you for joining the show, for being a guest. I hope all of our listeners will find something that's edifying to them that will help them to consider this space. For those of you that are listening, you can find out about our latest drops of episodes on Facebook, TikTok, LinkedIn, or YouTube. We still are waiting for that dance from Dr. Jim, but hopefully one day soon we'll see it on TikTok. Thank you everyone for joining Cascading Leadership, the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.